Hi, I'm Neil Orford and welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for August 2013, where we look at the articles that caught our attention in the critical care literature for the last month. So let's start with ECMO, because there was a bit of an ECMO flavour for the month. Firstly, the PRESERVE trial. So this study, published in Intensive Care Medicine, is a French observational study that aimed to identify factors associated with six-month mortality in patients receiving VV ECMO for ARDS and to create the PRESERVE score. In 140 patients, they found that the etiology was predominantly infectious, 45% bacterial, 26% H1N1. The intubate to ECMO median time was five days. That ECMO allowed an ultra-protective ventilation strategy where they decreased plateau pressures from 32 to 24 centimetres of water, tidal volumes from 5.9 to 2.8 mils per kilo. They found that the complications were common, and that was bleeding, 46%, VAP in 74%, and cannula infection in 16%. That the median duration of ECMO was 15 days, and of mechanical ventilation, 40 days. And that ICU death was due to multi-organ failure, septic shock, and bleeding. The ICU survival was 64%, and the six-month survival was 60% with the six-month quality of life lower than controls, with 36% of patients having persistent dyspnea and over a third having psychological symptoms. Now, the predictors of poor outcome were age, immunocompromised state, a plateau pressure greater than 30 centimetres before going on, peep less than 10, and a a mechanical ventilation duration of greater than six days prior to the initiation of ECMO. The predictors of a favourable outcome were surprisingly a BMI greater than 30, age less than 45, not surprising, and prone positioning before ECMO. So this did not prevent hypoxemia, but may have protected lungs from more mechanical ventilation-induced injury. At least that's their hypothesis. So overall, an interesting descriptive study of VV ECMO. The second study in intensive care medicine looks at long-term mortality in patients with COPD following ECMO for cardiac assist after cardiovascular surgery. So this prospective observational study describes the outcomes of 191 patients who received VA ECMO for support following cardiac surgery. 18% of patients had COPD, which was associated with reduced survival with an unadjusted hazard ratio of 1.74 adjusted 1.62. Now, this was more significant after adjustment for gold grade and long-term survival in non-COPD patients was 44% at one year compared to 23% in COPD patients. In summary, COPD was an independent predictor of long-term mortality in patients requiring VA ECMO for post-cardiac surgery support. The authors suggest that this knowledge be used to balance risk versus benefit prior to initiation of ECMO and to identify a population that may require more intense post-discharge care. The third ECMO study, again in intensive care medicine, 
is neurological complications in neonates supported with ECMO. Now, this ELSO registry data observational study describes the incidence, risk factors and outcomes of neurological complications following neonatal ECMO. They found that 20%, which was 1,412 of 7,190 patients, had neurological complications. The risk factors for neurological complications were birth weight less than 3 kilos, gestational age less than 34 weeks, need for CPR, a pre-ECMO pH less than 7.11 or bicarbonate use, and the use of VA ECMO. Neurological complications, not surprisingly, were associated with high mortality. The last ECMO study we'll talk about, again, in intensive care medicine, is the lack of association between body weight and mortality in patients on VV ECMO. This retrospective ELSO registry analysis primarily looks at the association between body weight and mortality in patients requiring VV ECMO for respiratory support. In 1,344 adults, they found that age over 53 years, primary diagnosis other than pneumonia and intubation for greater than three days prior to ECMO were independent risk factors for death. Now, body weight was not associated with increased risk of death. So in summary, high body weight should not be considered a contraindication to VV ECMO. So let's stay on obesity and raised BMI for a while. An article in Critical Care Medicine called Body Mass Index is Associated with Hospital Mortality in Critical Ill Patients, an Observational Cohort Study, looks at the obesity paradox. Now, this refers to the observation that in the general population, a high or low BMI is associated with an increased mortality, but in some hospital patient groups, a high BMI is associated with a lower mortality. In the critical care literature, there is conflicting evidence about the association between obesity and survival. This observational study describes outcomes of 154,308 patients admitted to Dutch ICUs over a 10-year period using BMI as a continuous, non-linear covariate in a logistic regression model. They found an inverse relationship between BMI and mortality, that is, the highest risk of death if BMI was less than 20 and the lowest if it was greater than 40. And this could not be explained by confounders. So why is the paradox present in critical illness? The authors discussed the possibility that low BMI may be related to other disease, for example, cancer, that obesity may provide adaptive mechanisms, soaking up cytokines by adipose or other possible mechanisms, but they conclude that the mechanism is unknown. Either way, an interesting observation. A small interesting study we noticed in intensive care medicine was effects of dobutamine on systemic, regional and microcirculatory perfusion parameters in septic shock, a randomised, placebo-controlled, double-blind crossover study. This small surrogate outcome RCT is of interest because it looks at dobutamine in septic shock, which is one of the components of the Rivers and subsequent early goal-directed therapy trials. Now, 
In summary, dobutamine failed to improve sublingual microcirculation, metabolic, hepatosplanchnic or peripheral perfusion parameters despite inducing a significant increase in systemic hemodynamic variables in septic shock patients without low cardiac output but with persistent hypoperfusion. So it would seem that, at least on a microcircuitry level, the rationale for using dobutamine in septic shock is questionable. The next study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine is the effects of prone positioning on lung protection in patients with ARDS. So is there an interaction between high PEEP and proning in severe ARDS? The rationale for this study is that both therapies are applied together, so it is worth exploring if there is a synergistic effect. In this complex study, they assessed 24 ARDS patients in ICU and during CT scan. Patients had 5 and 15 of PEEP in supine and prone position, preceded by a 45 centimetre of water recruitment manoeuvre. They also performed whole lung CT during breath hold sessions at three airway pressures, 45 centimetres of water plateau, 5 of PEEP and 15 of PEEP, in prone and supine position. Now what they found was prone and supine at PEEP of 5, there was no difference in gas exchange. When PEEP was increased from 5 to 15, there was improved oxygenation, compliance, amount of aerated tissue and hyperinflation in both prone and supine positions. Neither prone or increasing PEEP had a significant effect on cyclic recruitment and de-recruitment, but both together significantly decreased both. Tidal hyperinflation was highest in supine position with PEEP of 15 and was decreased by proning. And finally, increasing PEEP to 15 only improved oxygenation and compliance in patients with high recruitability. So overall, the combination of prone positioning and high PEEP was most beneficial in severe ARDS, improving oxygenation, compliance, and decreasing cyclic recruitment and de-recruitment. Now these are surrogate outcomes, but it certainly is an interesting outcome given the recent PRECEIVER trial. The next article, in, also in American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, is vasopressin compared with noradrenaline augments the decline of plasma cytokine levels in septic shock. Now this sub-study of the VAST trial looks at the effects of vasopressin versus noradrenaline on plasma cytokine levels in septic shock. And if you remember, VAST was an RCT comparing vasopressin at 0.01 to 0.03 units per minute to noradrenaline at 5 to 15 mics per minute and they found no difference in 28-day mortality, 35.4% versus 39.3%. In this study, they found that survivors had greater decreases in cytokine levels in the first 24 hours compared to non-survivors, that vasopressin decreased overall cytokine levels more than noradrenaline, in less severe sepsis, the difference over 24 hours in plasma cytokines was less pronounced between survivors and non-survivors, that vasopressin decreased interferon-inducible protein 10 and 
G CSG more in less severe sepsis and G macrophage CSF in more severe sepsis. So what does all this mean? In septic shock, vasopressin had a different effect on cytokines than noradrenaline, and this depended on severity. Cytokine response overall is different in survivors and non-survivors, and these differences in immune response are complex and multifactorial. It is not surprising that studies that group all septic patients together with their differing immune response struggle to find improvements in outcome. Perhaps there are benefits to vasopressin, but we will only be able to determine them when we can clearly define the immune status and response of a patient before enrolment. At least that's the theory. In the New England Journal of Medicine, we have a trial comparing non-invasive ventilation strategies in preterm infants. This prospective RCT looked at 1,009 low birth weight preterm infants who were randomised to one of two forms of NIV, that is nasal IPPV or nasal CPAP for the first 28 days of life. There was no difference in the primary outcome, which was deaths before 36 weeks, postmenstrual age or survival with BPD. There was also no difference in frequency of air leaks, necrotizing enterocolitis, duration of respiratory support and time to full nutrition. The rationale behind this trial is that nasal CPAP was thought to reduce the risk of BPD, although failure rates were thought to be higher in extremely low birth weight infants. Nasal IPPV is more complicated with an association with NEC and nasal trauma. So the more complicated, more expensive nasal IPPV does not seem to offer an advantage. The next study in JAMA is the association between early surgical intervention versus watchful waiting and outcomes for mitral regurgitation due to flail mitral valve leaflets. So this observational study compares the surgical repair versus initial medical therapy outcomes of 1,021 patients on the Mitral Regurgitation International Database, or the MITRE registry, who had flail leaflet with no class 1 heart failure triggers. With 98% complete follow-up over a mean of 10.3 years, they observed no difference in early survival or heart failure rates, but a significant decrease in long-term mortality with early surgery. So that's 86% versus 69% mortality uh, at 10 years. This was confirmed in risk-adjusted models. So... Maybe we'll be seeing more patients presenting for mitral valve surgery with less symptoms as a result. Again, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have a trial of intraoperative low tidal volume ventilation in abdominal surgery, the IMPROVE study group. This prospective RCT compares lung protective ventilation, which was 6 to 8 mils per kilo predicted body weight, PEEP 6 to 8 recruitment every 30 minutes, versus conventional ventilation, which was 10 to 12 mils per kilo predicted body weight, zero PEEP, plateau less than 30, um, in 400 adults undergoing major abdominal surgery of greater than two hours duration who had risk factors for post-operative pulmonary complications. What they found was that the patients were well-matched at baseline, that there was treatment separation, and that is that the one group got 11.1 mils per kilo with 
peep of zero versus 6.4 mils per kilo with a peep of six. There were low peak and plateau pressures in both. And there was a decrease in the primary outcome with the lung protective ventilation strategy. And the primary outcome was a composite of major pulmonary and extra pulmonary complications occurring by day seven after surgery. Now, these included pneumonia, need for invasive or non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure, sepsis, severe sepsis, and septic shock, or death. So the primary outcome rates were for lung protective ventilation, 17.5% by day seven, compared to conventional ventilation at 36%. And that's a risk ratio of 0.49, the p-value of less than 0.001. They also found that the lung protective ventilation group needed less non-invasive ventilation and had a lower probability of 30-day post-op intubation or NIV. There was no difference in mortality or individual adverse events, and there was no difference in ICU length of stay, but a decreased hospital length of stay from 13 to 11 days with the lung protective ventilation strategy. So from an intensivist perspective, what do I think? Well, this is a low-risk group for us. That is, this is not an ARDS group and not a group that we would look at for lung protective ventilations necessarily. On review of the results, the highly significant primary outcome finding was contributed to by a decrease in pulmonary complications, which included atelectasis and pneumonia. But there was no difference in ARDS or acute lung injury or need for invasive ventilation, SIRS and septic shock. So you could argue that this primary outcome highly significant difference was contributed to a lot by minor complications which weren't patient-centred, you know, things like atelectasis. Secondly, and arguably, the ventilation strategies could be questioned. The lung protective ventilation group got 6 to 8 mils per kilo predicted body weight and a peak of 6 to 8, which sounds like standard care from an ICU perspective, while the conventional group, who got 10 to 12 mils per kilo and zero peep, seems certainly at the boundary of what we would consider standard care. Still, in conclusion, it seems that 6 to 8 mils per kilo and 6 a peep reduced post-op respiratory complications compared to high tidal volumes and ZEEP. And finally, in critical care medicine, we have a systematic review of evidence-informed practices for patient care rounds in the ICU. And I guess this is of interest if you've ever wondered if your ward rounds were being done in an effective manner. So communication matters. The Joint Commission for Accreditation of Healthcare Organisations in the United States reported that communication failures are an important source of medical error and contribute up to 85% of sentinel events in hospital. This systematic review examines the evidence for facilitators and barriers to patient care rounds in ICU. In short, they found that the facilitators were an open collaborative discussion environment, reducing non-essential time-wasting activities, having access to patient data, discussion and documentation of goals, standardised round structure and process, use of a checklist, having a pharmacist present, having a multidisciplinary round, having greater healthcare provider autonomy with explicit role and visibility of healthcare providers. The barriers were interruptions, increased rounding time, a non-standard structure, 
the allied healthcare provider perception of being non-valued, use of an e-record, and a hierarchical healthcare provider structure. A possible barrier and facilitator were bedside rounds and conference room rounds. So that's interesting that both can be effective. They conclude that the best practice recommendations, firstly, what they found strong evidence, or what they say just do it, is to implement multidisciplinary rounds, to standardise the location, the time and the team, to have explicit roles for each healthcare provider, to develop and implement a structured tool, to reduce non-essential time wasting, to minimise interruptions and to focus discussions on development of daily goals and document all discussed goals. There was weak evidence, or this is the maybe do it stuff, for bedside discussion for patient centeredness, conference room discussion for efficiency and communication, open collaborative environment, visibility, and empowering a team based approach. So it's well worth a look if you're reviewing your practice. So that's it from me and from the critique team for Journal Club for August. Come to the site to look at the papers in more detail. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Bye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not check out our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of online critical care education and include podcasts, journal clubs, online presentations, modules, and much, much more. You can also join our free blog to help you stay up to date. Our websites are found at www.crit-iq.com and www.crit-nurse.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter or visit us at the iTunes store. While you're there, check out our data interpretation and CT interpretation apps. Critique, making critical care education easier.